Welcome to the Inspire Church podcast. We are a church being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and living in the rhythms of life, seeking the good of the city for the glory of God. Today, we're currently meeting a one-to-one grant match. Please consider giving so we can meet our match. If you'd like to give, you can give at inspirechurches.com. Be blessed. To choose from. But I know that the Lord has guided this entire series that we launched last Sunday, and I'm believing that he has a word for each and every one of us. Amen? So I'm actually going to pray, and then we're going to get into it. Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord God, that you, Lord Jesus, will guide us. Holy Spirit, that this word that is already anointed, this word that is already full of life, that it will breathe life into us, Lord God, that 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 life will penetrate our hearts, Heavenly Father, and that we will respond to the truth of your word as your Holy Spirit illuminates the text, Lord God, and we will draw closer to you, index our heart towards you this morning in Jesus' mighty name, amen and amen. We are a culture that is fascinated with extraordinary encounters, right? So just, just I mean, so you guys know, government's confirmed, right? Alien life exists. Y'all saw the news, right? Uh, we are just so fascinated behind stories of the paranormal, stories of the unexpected experiences, right? That just sort of dramatically interrupt lives. We are preoccupied with aliens and ghosts. And what's interesting is some of that's, well, where does that desire come from? And actually what you see in scripture is that the Bible is full, full of these extraordinary encounters with God. These divine interruptions, right, that um, not only permanently transforms our lives, but also anticipates the most extraordinary encounter in human history. And that's what we call Christmas, the incarnation, the birth of Jesus Christ. The Advent season uh, that we are in, and in this series, what we are hoping to do is for all of us to remember how God encountered humanity in the past. We also, number two, want us to recall how God is still encountering us in the present And then finally, number three, how he will ultimately encounter all of creation in the future. So how he did it in the past, the present, and the future. And today we are looking at an encounter with God that happened to the most unlikely person in the most unlikely place. The person is Hagar, and the place is in the desert wilderness. So it's fitting that today's message is called Hagar's Wilderness. Hagar's Wilderness. We're going to be reading in Genesis chapter 16, and we're reading the entire chapter, all 230 verses. No, I'm just kidding. We're reading the entire chapter. Don't worry, it's just 16 verses. Y'all can do it. I believe in you. All right, you ready? Genesis chapter 16. For those of you who are turning to that, Genesis is the very first book of the Bible. If you don't know where that is, then we might be in trouble. So, just kidding. Very first book, Genesis chapter 16. 
says this. Now, Sarai and Abram, just so you know, in this passage, Sarai and Abram are Sarah and Abraham. They were first called Sarai and Abram, and then later on, their names changed to Sarah and Abraham. So I might use those names interchangeably today, but whether you hear me say Sarai, or whether you hear me hear Sarah, or whether you hear me use the word, uh, the name Abram or Abraham, I'm speaking of the same, okay? So Sarai and Abram's wife had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian servant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my servant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Right. (laughs) Abram agreed to what Sarai said. Of course he did, right? Amen. No, just kidding. So after Abram had uh, been living in Canaan for 10 years, Sarai, had his wife, had, Sarai his wife, took her uh, Egyptian servant Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrongdoing I am suffering. I put my servant in your arms. And now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. She's doing with the little head and little, you know. May the Lord judge between you and me. Well, your servant is in your hands, Abram said. Like, hey, this is your problem, right? Do with her whatever you think is best. Well, then Sarai mistreated Hagar, and so she fled from her. She ran into the desert. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. Just in case anybody's on the road to Shur and you want to see the spring, you know where it is. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, and I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you will also give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael for the Lord has heard your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well is called Beer Lahai Roy. Not beer like beer, but you know. It is still there between Kadesh and bread. And so Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she bore. Abram was 68 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. 86 years old. This morning I want to talk to you about the master that is a slave or a servant. The servant that is free and the one who sees. The master that is a slave, the servant who is free, and the God who sees. Slave, servant, sees. Number one, the master that is a slave. Verse one says that Sarai Sarai had come to bore no children. Why is that significant? Well, it's significant for many reasons. 
And because she became, because she bore no children, she then suggested for her husband to sleep with her servant. Now, what's that about? What is it that Sarah's doing? Well, Sarah is actually proposing something that might sound very strange to us, but was actually common practice. In fact, almost universal practice. Historians and archaeologists, right, um, will all tell you in their writings that this was part of the world of this time, that this was a universal practice. And so Sarah was a monarch of that clan, if you will. She, and, so, and so Abraham being a patriarch, Sarah being a monarch. And so Abraham had servants and Sarah had servants. Abraham was a master and Sarah was a master. And so Sarah could bring one of her servants to Abraham and Abraham could essentially take her as his wife, but like a second tier wife. It'd be like a second tier wife. Now, what's interesting about this is this idea of polygamy we find throughout scripture and yet nowhere in scripture does God condone it. Whenever Abraham, Moses, David, and almost everyone in the Old Testament were doing this, this experiment, this experience of polygamy, many wives or concubines, whenever the Bible highlights or describes this experience, it always ends in disaster. And it will end in disaster here. What's interesting is in the text, it says that, that Sarah went and told Abraham to go ahead and sleep with her servant. And then it says this, the writer was very careful to use a particular word. He said, the writer said that Abraham agreed, agreed with Sarah. That word agreed was purposely used because it is the same word used in Genesis where Adam agreed with Eve to eat of the fruit. Abraham agreed with Sarah. Now, it's a little unfortunate that the translators put it that way because what it literally says is that Abraham hearkened to the voice of Sarah. Well, in other words, what the writer is trying to point out is that he had been listening to the voice of the Lord and then he shifted to listen to a different voice. To a different voice. So I'd like to look at this section really quick, first psychologically and second theologically. Because you have to understand it from both terms and significances in order to really understand the narrative. First, what's going on psychologically here? Well, what this means to them that might elude us is that Sarah was actually very depressed she was in devastation because at the time in that culture, what the culture did was it assigned this particular role to women. And in that culture, their role was to have kids, to have kids, to build a family. It says in verse two, right? That was their role. That, in other words, kids were the women's capital. They were her significance. And if she did not have them, she was looked at as being disgraced and felt worthless. But not just kids, specifically sons. 
And the fact that she had borne no children was psychologically devastating. It meant she was in tremendous pain and in tremendous despair. Theologically, there was something else wrong. Because before this passage, before chapter 16, there's previous chapters. And in those previous chapters, God made a promise to Abraham. God made a promise to Abraham and he said, look at Abraham, I want you to look at the world. I want you to see what's going on, suffering, evil, war, all of it. And I want you to know, I am going to fix it. I'm going to heal it. And how I'm going to do that is I am going to allow you to have a son. And from that son will come great nations. And from that nation, you will produce the divine Messiah that will save the world. So here is the promise that God gave to Abraham. And here is the reality that Abraham is facing. And so Abraham tells Sarah, hey, God spoke to me. This is what's happening. And you can imagine the excitement. Six months goes by. A year goes by. Three years turns into five years, turns into 10 years, turns into 20 years, turns into decade after decade. No child, no child, no child, no child, no child, no child. What does it mean? When God gives you a promise, but the promise seems nowhere to be found. Mm. And so you can imagine how Sarah must have felt. Because not only did she have this pressure from her husband to have a son. But now this pressure from God. And now she feels like she's failing Abraham. And now she also feels like she's failing God. And on top of that she feels like she's failing the world. Because supposedly from her comes the Messiah. You see. The shame. The disgrace. That she must have felt. My goodness. Now, my guess is because you are all modern people. Modern people and most of you from the Bay Area. And I would think that most of you probably reading this passage would be like, listen, that pressure, that role that that culture assigned to this woman... Where, where, you're, you're the, where, where child, child, bearing children is your significance, where your worth is to be built, uh, is to have a family, to build a family and to have that, that. That as somebody who lives in this day and age, you probably look at that and you say, how terrible. How terrible. How horrible. She shouldn't have been under that pressure. She should, she should break free from those traditions. There's a movie called Mona Lisa Smile. I don't know if anybody has watched it. Mona Lisa Smile. And in it, there's uh, Catherine Watson, who is the main character, played by Julia Roberts. And she is a recent uh, UCLA graduate who is hired to teach at this historically prestigious, all-female Wellesley College in 1953. These women were the brightest of the brightest of the brightest. And she went there 
because she wanted to make a difference. She wanted to bring reform because the reality is at that college, 95% of the women that were extremely educated, extremely intelligent, would never use that intelligence for anything besides raising children. And so throughout the movie, she is pushing the envelope and she's constantly saying, listen, you need to throw off the remnant of the shackles of these traditional cultures that you have been assigned, right? And she's saying, listen, if all you're going to do is bear children, then you are worthless. Now, she doesn't say those words, but that's what she makes them feel. Isn't that interesting? So now what she's doing is she's saying, listen, you, culture has given you a role. And that role says, hey, if you do this, then you will be worth something. And she comes in and she says, no, 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 don't do that. In order to be worth something, you have to do this over here. It's fascinating. She's in a dialogue in the movie with one of her students who wants to go to Yale Law and, uh, and she's pushing her to apply and she wants her to apply. And, and she says, okay, well, I guess I'll apply. And she says, great. And, and she said, well, what will you do after that? And she says, well, then I'll be married and have kids. And she said, and what else? And she said, well, what do you mean? I'll be married and have kids. And Julia Roberts looks at her and says, you know, you can do both, which is very true. But what's interesting is as the movie progresses on, what Julia Roberts' character does, and this particular student brings it out in her, it says, listen, you're saying we can be whatever we want to be. You're saying that, listen, we can do whatever we want to do, and that's when we will be happy. The problem is, is what if I really do want to get married? What if I really do want to have kids? What if I really do want that? Are you saying I am less than? And in that section of the movie, Julia Roberts has no words. Do you see what's happening? Every culture, spiritually speaking, assigns us roles, puts us in categories. Every culture. Every culture says, in order to do, have value, in order to have worth, you have to do this. Maybe it's not having children. Maybe it's career. Maybe it's you have to have this career or make this amount of money or you have to look this way. You have to you have, to have this sort of physique. Whatever it is, there is something that culture assigns you and it says if you do not meet this, somehow you will feel less significant, less than, like you have not measured up, like you have not arrived. So the one that says, I need to have children or I'm worthless, and the one that says, I have to have a career or I'm worthless, is in the same boat. Because then you won't work for joy of doing your job or being productive or producing something good for people. No, no, no. You'll be working so that way you can achieve a goal. So that way you, you, you can be accepted by others. So that way you won't look down on, or maybe so even you can look down on someone else. And, it, and so if you do reach this, you'll be incredibly inflated. 
You'll have, a, you'll have an inflated view of yourself. And if you don't get it, then you'll be emotionally defenseless. Do you see? Your culture tells you you have to have this or you're nobody. And, and it's not just that your culture is socially constructing you, but that there is actually something spiritual that is going on. You see, the, 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 this identity, as postmodern theorists say, and, and to an extent they're right, that there is something deeply spiritual, that you, you take this thing and you take it into yourself, and then that thing becomes your idol, becomes your motivation, be, becomes your salvation, your significance, becomes your God, becomes your God. And then you are bound. What are you a slave to? And if you don't think you're chained, then you're very chained. If you think, well, I'm an, I'm an individual. No, think again. Because you are a part of a culture, some culture, right? Maybe an anti-mainstream culture, maybe a subculture, but either way, some culture, right? Even the ones that, you know, rise against the man. That culture, the culture against culture, you know. You're, you're part of some sort of culture or subculture that says, if you're not this, then you are barren. And you take it inside of you. And you have to convince yourselves and convince other people that you're okay. We take it inside of ourselves and it becomes our God. It becomes our salvation. And, and this is what we're being told. And, and we are chained until something else can convince you apart from that. Until something can comes along and convince you that you can be truly loved. That's the irony of the narrative. Both of these women are victim to their culture. Everybody in this room Male and female, man, woman, child, we are all victims to our culture. And this is why it's interesting because Paul, when he goes to write Galatians, specifically Galatians chapter 4, he begins to tell them about the gospel. And in the, near the end of the passage of Galatians, Paul actually talks and points to Sarah and Hagar. And as he talks about Sarah and Hagar, he all of a sudden brings in this Old Testament passage from Isaiah. And he says this. He says, be glad, O barren woman who bears no children. Break forth and cry aloud who have no labor pains. Because more are the children of the desolate woman than those who are, her, who are from her husband. Wow. Doesn't that seem antithetical? and counterintuitive to the culture in which they live. See, what Paul is trying to say is, do you want to be free from what culture tells you is your significance? The only way to be free from your culture, the only way to be free from continually being whipped back and forth between Hagar and Sarah and Hagar and Sarah, right? Between being overly inflated or under-inflated views of yourself 
is to understand that your righteousness is a spiritual gift of grace. That when Christ is your life, not your children, not your wealth, when Christ is your life, not your title or your education, when Christ is your life. You see what I'm saying? When Christ is your life, not family, not friends, when Christ is your life. And this is what I love about the gospel because it does not acquiesce, does it? The gospel undermines all cultures. The gospel is incredibly subversive. It undermines every culture that has been. And this is why in some ways it's offensive to every culture. Look at what the gospel says about holiness and sex. To, to our westernized culture, it's offensive. It's too restrictive. To the Muslim culture, it's not restrictive enough. It offends both, you see. It will offend every culture because it is not from any culture here on earth. And this is so amazing because when you look at Sarah and Hagar, from the outside, Hagar is the one that is a slave, is a servant, is a bound. From the outside, Sarah is the one that is free. But the reality is, is that Sarah is actually a slave. The master is a servant. While Hagar is actually free. Point two, the servant that is free. Hagar's situation is fascinating. Because though she is a servant, she is actually free. She just doesn't know it yet. She just doesn't know it yet. Abraham made a choice. It's interesting because here Sarah says, listen, I'm desperate, I'm broken, and so I need you to do this, and, and this is how I'm going to get a son. And, and so Abraham had a choice, a choice. And he looks at Sarah, and he looks at Hagar, and he has to choose. And see, he has to choose, and what he's choosing is not actually Sarah and Hagar. What he's actually choosing is grace or works. That's what he's actually choosing. Am I going to have salvation through grace or salvation through works? You see, because am I going to choose Sarah or Hagar? In other words, am I going to try to save myself through my own human abilities or completely rely on the supernatural grace? And this is the reason why in Galatians 4, Paul speaks to the Galatians and he's desperately trying to get them to see that, listen, you cannot be made right through God with your own human efforts. No matter how hard you try, no matter what you try to do, no matter how much you try to crawl up the moral ladder, no matter how many promises you make, pie crust promises, easily made, easily broken, no matter how many times you go before the Lord and say, I'm going to try to do better and I'm never going to do it again, you will fail unless you put your trust in the one and only Savior of the world, you see. He says you cannot be made right with God by living a good life. You cannot have this thing that, well, I will develop my own righteousness and then I'll present that and I'll give it to God. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not that you develop your righteousness and give it to God, but rather that God develops righteousness and gives it to you. And this is why at the climax of Galatians, when he's trying to tell them that you cannot do it on your own efforts, but you have to rely on the supernatural grace of God, who does he put in front of us as an example but Hagar and Sarah? 
you and I are faced with our own choice of Hagar or Sarah. He chose Hagar. He slept with her and they conceived. And when she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Do you see that? See, Hagar looks like the one that is completely sinless here. But actually, it says that she became inflated, proud. Because now she has something that Sarah doesn't. And she began to mistreat her. It reminds me how in some Asian cultures, it is disrespectful to look at, especially someone that is superior to you, in their eye. And I could even see in these moments these small, passive-aggressive gestures where Hagar might look at Sarah in her eye while holding her belly, which I have the perfect belly for this. This is... It's twins. <laughs> that wasn't in my notes. What am I doing? Okay. <laughs> All right. You see? It's interesting. And so because of that, then, then, then Sarah begins to catch on. And she's like, mm-mm, something's not right. And so she goes to Abraham and says, this is your fault. Right? This is your fault. You went and got her pregnant. (laughs) And then it says that Sarah went and mistreated Hagar. Now, we're not exactly sure what that means. And some have suggested that that meant that she beat her. But the fact that she was pregnant and the fact that Sarah wanted this baby probably more than Hagar did would suggest that she probably didn't beat her, but what she probably did was verbally abuse her, for sure. For sure belittled her. For sure made her life horrible. So much that a pregnant woman fled to the desert. Fled to the desert. And she runs off to the desert where she has the supernatural encounter. It says the angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. Now who is the angel of the Lord? And Pastor Phil touched on it last Sunday. And if you weren't here, tough luck, I'm not going to answer it. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) See, we know, what we know is this, is that when the angel of the Lord shows up, like in the burning bush with Moses, Moses then says, I have seen the Lord. When the angel of the Lord shows up and wrestles Jacob, Jacob says, I have seen the Lord. When when the angel of the Lord shows up before Joshua, right, and all of the military generals afterward, Joshua says, I have seen the Lord. So Hagar ran to the desert. Not to a temple, not to green pastures, not to the top of a mountain, but to the desert, to the desert. And in this wilderness of a desert, a barren, a a woman that's running from a barren woman runs to a barren place, a desert. And it is in this desert that God shows up. The most unlikely of places, not a temple, not a mountaintop, 
But God shows up. And God is not scared of your wilderness. He's not scared of meeting you in dry places. He's not scared of meeting you in death places. He is not scared. We serve a God that shows up. We show a God, serve a God that is omnipresent, meaning everywhere, even in the worst of places. We have a God that shows up in storms. This is what was so surprising with the disciples when they're out on the Sea of Galilee and the storm rises up. And you know the story. All of a sudden, they're screaming and they think they're going to die and they look out and they see something walking on the water and they shout, it's a ghost. They didn't think it was God. God was far from, they didn't think that would be the Lord. Why? Because we don't think God would enter into our problems. We think God is a God as somebody who crosses his hands outside of pain and suffering. We can never imagine a God that will enter into pain and suffering. We think of a God that looks at you and says, let's see what you do. We never imagine a God that will walk on the waters with you, that would, set, that would face the storms and the waves with you but you need to know that if you are a Christian today you don't walk through fire or floods or storms depression or loneliness pain or disease by yourself but you have a God I wish I had somebody that could testify you have a God that is always there you see and so he says Hagar servant of Sarah where have you come from and where are you going? This is the first time in the narrative we see where someone asks Hagar about Hagar. The Lord acknowledges her, gives her dignity. And I don't know that she was necessarily looking for God, but God was looking for her you see it happens so often that God shows up and the first thing he does is he will ask questions ask questions instead of you know declaiming or proclaiming or declaring he will ask questions and he does this all the time he came down and said Adam where are you right when, when talking to Job, he began to ask Job all sorts of questions. Who created all things? Who is the one that created the stars and the moon and the sun? Who is the one? In the New Testament, Nicodemus went to Jesus and Jesus said, why do you call me good? If God is the only one that is good, are you calling me God? See, when God asks a question, it's, because he, it's not because he doesn't know the answer, but rather these questions are a way of him inviting you into a space to have a conversation so he can reveal himself to you. She says, I'm running away from my mistress. And the angel of the Lord says, go back and submit. Now, for any of you who have ever read this story, and if, that, if that's the first time, if you read it for the first time, and I, and I don't mean just gloss over it. I mean, when you really read it and you stop, you're not, and you're not expecting, you don't know what he's going to say. The last thing you would think God would have said was to go back, right, to what we for sure know is a verbally abusive situation and submit, right? Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. 
right? If I'm out here in the desert and I'm doing all this, you know, I'm thinking, okay, I must be hallucinating. God, I need some ID. I don't, I don't know if this is you because I do not think, right? I grew up hearing that, you know, God is good all the time and all the time. Okay, there's a few of you. And so I know that God that is good ain't about to tell me to go back. And for many people, they will read this and say, this is why I can't trust the Bible. Because if God is good, then pain and suffering wouldn't exist. In fact, for some, this is why they become atheists. But what's interesting is actually, according to atheism, there is no such thing as good and evil, right or wrong. Not ultimately, not absolutely, now, don't take my word for it. Let's hear from some. Richard Dawkins, and I quote this all the time. He said this, the universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. Atheist J.L. Mackey says this, we concede that the problem of evil and suffering does not, after all, show the central doctrine of theism to be logically inconsistent with one another. Wow. Do you know what that means? In other words, what he's saying is, listen, in atheism, as we are listening to the evil and suffering and everything that's going on, we cannot say that evil and suffering is logically inconsistent with God's existence. Wow. Or what about atheist William Rowe? who says this, some philosophers have contended that the existence of evil and suffering is logically inconsistent with the, with the existence of a theistic God. Now look what he says. No one, I think, has succeeded in establishing such an extravagant claim. Wow. But I want to take it a step further. Not only are evil and suffering not inconsistent with God's existence, but they actually point to it. And being loved by God does not dissolve us from suffering. But also God does not exclude himself from suffering, but he also suffers. The scripture tells us that Christ took on the form of a what? A master? No, a slave. Now you might say, okay, fine. I'm going to tell you right now, if that was me, I would be so angry with God. I'd say, God, why are you doing this? Why would you allow this? Jackie Hill Perry, who's done an incredible study on this uh, passage, says this, that when we get to this part of scripture, she says, sometimes when you read passages like this, you can import your feelings onto the text and translate it in such a way that it honors your feelings but dishonors the text. And you may read this and think, man, God is tripping, but have you given Hagar the dignity of how you should define God? Because Hagar does not respond to God sending her back with contempt, but with praise. Wow, that's a good word. That's a good word. Hagar's response to what God calls her to do should inform our response on what God calls her to do. Hagar's response to how, to what God calls her to do should somehow inform our response to what God calls her to do. 
But look what he promises Hagar. He says, you're going to go back. He says, but one, I'll protect you. And then he says this, two, you'll have a son and you'll call him Ishmael. And then three, from him will come a great nation. Almost the same exact promise he gave to Sarah, except he does not say that from that nation will come the Messiah. That was left for Sarah. Do you see that? In other words, he's telling Hagar, Hagar, you're free. You just don't know it yet. And for many of you in this room, the Holy Spirit is saying, listen, you're free. You just don't know it yet. And actually, if you clip on reading to Genesis chapter 20, which why don't we do that now? Just kidding. <laughs> what you'll realize is she actually does. She, that, that she eventually comes out of being a servant and goes back to Egypt, her homeland. This is why you must not be governed by the etern eternal, you must be governed by the eternal reality of your calling and not by the temporal experience of your circumstance. I'll say that again. This is why you must be governed by the eternal reality of your calling and not by the temporal experience of your circumstance. Your circumstance should not cause you to then make that, uh, make that de a defining moment of your calling or of your identity. And so Hagar responds to God. Look at this, verse 13. So she gave the name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. The master who is a slave, the servant who is free. Point number three, the God who sees. The God who sees. And this word sees doesn't just mean physically sees her. But it means seize her. It means seize all of her, her emotions, her psyche, her heart, her motivations, her desire, her pains, her hurts, her temptations, her sins, her setbacks, her failures. He sees all of her. And, it, and listen, not just for the non-believer, but even for the Christian, this could be very scary and very intimidating to believe in a God who sees if you do not remember the gospel. You see, because the gospel says this, that God sees you and chooses you. That God sees you, all of you, all of you, all of your insecurities, your doubts, your successes, your failures, your temptations, your sins, the great parts of you, the evil, dark parts of you, the hurts of you, all of you. He sees all of you and he chooses you and he loves you, you see. For those who are saved, you need to know that. So she goes back to Abram and tells him what happens. Because he says, I'm going to give you a son, call him Ishmael, and make a great nation from him. Look at this, verse 15. Verse 15. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Now, many of you might have glossed over this. I know I did for many years. But look at this. 
Commentators bring this out. Hagar bore him a born Abram a son, and Abram gave him the, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son. In other words, Abram listens or hearkens to Hagar. See, earlier in the text, he hearkened to Sarah. Now he hearkens to Hagar. In other words, early in the text, he hearkened to his own flesh. And this time. Abram went back to listening to the voice of the Lord because in that culture, when the, it was the men that named the children, and it says here, Abram gave the name Ishmael. Ishmael, the God who listens. The God who listens. Let me just say this. The voice you listen to today impacts the experience you have tomorrow. The voice you listen to today impacts the experience you have tomorrow. This was the great encounter that Hagar had. She encountered the God who sees. Wow. wow. The God who sees. And then look at verse 13. She says this. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. I have now seen the one who sees me. I have now seen the one who sees me. We need to learn to be better at seeing. I don't know how many of you have read uh, Sherlock, any of the Sherlock Holmes stories, but in the one that's the scandal in Bohemia, he says this famous quote. He says, you see, but you don't observe. You see, but you don't observe. There's a story of Sherlock Holmes and Watson, and they were out, um, and uh, they were on an assignment, and um, they ended up having to camp out, and so, you know, they built a tent, and and they fell asleep. And, and in the middle of the night, Sherlock Holmes felt a drift. And he looks up and he wakes up. Um, he wakes up. Who is it? Watson. Watson. Thank you. And he says, Watson, what do you see? And Watson says, oh, well, I see billions of stars. And I see, and I see a galaxy and a, and a bright moon. And and I see a few clouds over there. And he says, uh, why, Sherlock, what do you see? And Sherlock says, Watson, you idiot, somebody stole our tent. <laughs> we see, but do we see? We see, but do we observe? In fact, I have a question for you. Do you see the God that sees you? Do you see the God that sees you? Because until you see the God that sees you, you will be a slave to your culture to the identity that culture gives you until your heart is completely convinced that God sees you and loves you, not based on performance, but on the fact that you put your trust in Jesus Christ, then and only then will you experience inner freedom. Have you encountered the one that sees you? 
Have you had this encounter? The one who sees you fully, loves you deeply. The one that is there, that never leaves you, that never forsakes you. The one that is there through everything, all of it. The tears that fall that nobody sees. The silent screams inside of frustration because you cannot articulate what's going on in here. And so it comes out in all sorts of ways. Do you not see the one that sees you? That hears your cries? That knows your pain? That sees your mistakes? Your insecurities? your fears, your doubts, your anxieties? Do you see the one that, set, that looks at you and says, listen, you don't need to do this to be significant. You already are. And because you are already significant, it stops you from chasing after other things to try to get that. Those things no longer have control over you. You aren't chasing after something that will come and maybe give you some fulfillment temporarily until you find yourself having to chase after something again. No longer are you there waiting to grasp and capture your value based on what somebody else declares over you, but rather the one who died and rose again has shown you that you are significant. Do you see the God that sees you? Would you stand to your feet? May God's word continue to challenge and bless you throughout your day. Thank you for tuning in. And if you'd like to give to help us meet our match, please give at inspirechurches.com. Have a beautiful day.